0: Elie Wiesel trusted in God. Ever since he was a boy, he believed that God cared deeply for he and for his people. But all that changed in the grueling death camps of Nazi Germany. See, Eli was a Jew and subjected to the horrific atrocities of Auschwitz. His faith was shattered as his God seemed to stand idly by while he and his people suffered Horrific evils in the death camps in Germany. In the preface to his memoir, Ellie writes this, quote, In the beginning there was faith, which is childish, trust, which is vain, and illusion, which is dangerous. We believed in God, trusted in man, and lived with the illusion that every one of us has been entrusted with a sacred spark from the Shekinah's flame. That every one of us carries in his eyes and in his soul a reflection of God's image. That was the source, if not the cause, of all our ordeals, Unquote. How could a good God exist in a world filled with such mindless cruelty? In the face of crippling evil, many have concluded with Wiesel that God is dead. For if he truly was a good and powerful God, he would never permit such suffering and pain. Therefore, since evil exists, God does not. This problem of evil is arguably one of the most compelling cases against the existence of the God of the Bible. It is what German playwright George Büchner calls the rock of atheism. And this is the rock that we will seek to confront today in the minutes ahead, considering in particular, the logical problem of evil. But before we proceed, I want to acknowledge that presenting a logical defense to the existence of a good God in a wicked world does not eliminate the problem of evil. Evil creates, as many of you know, innumerable problems, physically, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, and emotionally. But today I want to address the problem logically. And by that, I mean, the accusation that the biblical depiction of God cannot exist in a world like ours. In other words, we'll seek to respond to the atheist's assertion that the existence of a good God in a wicked world is logically incoherent and internally inconsistent. But in our pursuit of a logical solution to evil, please do not hear me suggest that this resolves the emotional problem or that it belittles your suffering or pain in any way. In fact, I think that most people you'll encounter who question the existence or the goodness of God in the face of their suffering are not necessarily looking for a logical justification. They're not asking for a rational syllogism. They're probably looking instead for an ear to listen or a shoulder to cry on. And yet I do believe that moving towards an answer to the logical problem is a worthy endeavor because our faith is not irrational. Our faith is not arbitrary. It's not a blind leap in the dark. And so instead, I believe it's worth our efforts to, as Jude says in Jude 1.3, to contend for the faith. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, to make a defense for the hope that is in us. So let's start with the problem. We'll consider its nature It's complexity, and then it's validity. And you can follow along in the notes. I have some blanks to fill in just to keep you guys awake. Historically, the nature of the problem of evil has been presented both deductively and inductively. The deductive problem seeks to demonstrate the internal incoherence of Christianity's God by isolating four Christian affirmations that as a set are self-contradictory. So here are the affirmations. Number one, God exists. Number two, God is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Number three, God is omnibenevolent, or all-good. And number four, evil exists. Those are the propositions. In his book, The Miracle of Theism, J.L. Makey believes that the incoherence of these Christian propositions makes the Christian God logically impossible, or, he, or as he puts it, quote, positively irrational. Now, the contradiction of these propositions may not be immediately apparent to you. And that's because on its face, there is no apparent contradiction. Not until Makey defines his terms, right? By omnipotent, Makey means there is no limits to what God can do. And by omnibenevolent, he means that God eliminates evil as far as he can. So now with those definitions, we see the contradiction, right? For if God has the desire and the ability to eliminate evil entirely, then it follows that God and evil cannot coexist. Therefore, through the undeniable presence of evil, Makey believes that he has exposed the internal contradiction of theism. Now, although the deductive problem seems compelling, you may have already noticed that it forces, that its force rises and falls on the legitimacy of his definitions, right? If his propositions as he defines them were affirmed, then we would most certainly have a logical contradiction. However, his assertions that God's power affords him the freedom to do anything at all, and that his love compels him to eliminate every trace of evil, I would argue are sorely misguided. What if, for example, God had a good reason for permitting evil? In that case, it's hard to prove how these propositions contradict. And, and in fact, there are numerous apologists who have made this crystal clear. Uh, Greg Bonson was mentioned, Alvin Plantinga, just to name a few. And so I would argue the deductive case against God falls flat. And recognizing those deficiencies of the deductive problem, others have used the inductive method for their case against the existence of the Christian God. Where the deductive method focuses on the presence of evil generally, the inductive method considers the kinds of evil specifically. And the strength of the argument of the inductive method rests on the presence of meaningless evils or gratuitous evils. Here the critic concedes the point I just made, that an all-loving, all-powerful God could logically permit evil if he had a good purpose for it, However, he reasons that due to the innumerable cases of purposeless evils, and here the examples abound, right? Meaningless evils. This all-loving, all-powerful God is therefore unlikely. William Rowe, philosopher, presents the inductive argument with the following syllogism. He says, number one, an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being would not permit an evil unless he had a justifying reason to permit it. Number two, however, there exists horrendous evils that an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good being would have no justifying reason to permit. Therefore, God does not exist. In light of this argument, Rowe concludes that, quote, the fact about evil in our world provide good reason to think that God does not exist. Responding to this line of reasoning, Tim Keller notes that the weakness of the inductive argument is that the assertion that evil, which appears to be pointless, is pointless. Due to our limitations, this is a claim that we just simply cannot prove. Ironically, the assertion of actual, gratuitous, meaningless evil is unverifiable and is thus founded on, as Keller says, quote, a blind faith of the highest order, unquote. As meaningless as particular evils may seem, we cannot prove that the appearance represents the reality. Now, the inductive problem raises real concerns, and I am under no delusions that I can ever explain every reason for every evil and pain and suffering and sorrow that you face. It deals with real examples that humanly speaking have no discernible purpose or justification. And yet, I believe that due to God's incomprehensibility and our own limitations, the inductive case claims fall short of its goals. So let's next consider the complexity of this problem. It's a challenging problem, not just because of its gravity, but also its complexity. I'd like to consider its complexity by first identifying the two kinds of evil in our world, and then acknowledging the various theological systems, even within Christianity, in which this problem resides. So first, the kinds of evil. While there's an overlap, evil falls generally into one of two categories. There's moral evil, and there's natural evil. The former is the sin that we commit, so this is murder, this is deceit, this is abuse. The latter are the amoral events that come about in nature and cause suffering. So these are earthquakes, hurricanes, drought, even cancer. In Genesis 3, 17 through 19, we learn that natural evil is the direct result of moral evil. And what God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. So as John Frame observes, quote, Scripture gives us an explicit answer to the problem of natural evil. Natural evil is a curse brought on the world because of moral evil. Due to Adam's rebellion and disobedience in the garden, all nature bears the weight of the curse. We see that in Romans chapter 8. So when we isolate these two kinds of evil, we can give a biblical answer for the presence of natural evil. However, behind natural evil stands moral evil. And that is the evil that creates the logical problem. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God permit Adam to fall? Why didn't he prevent it? Why didn't he stop it? These are the questions relating to moral evil. And so that's where we're going to sharpen our focus. But next with the complexity, we consider the various theological problems. Another reason it's so complex is because of the wide variety of theological systems and applications and interpretations within Christianity. The result is that within every system, the problem of evil takes on a unique shape. So, for example, the problem of evil takes on a different color within Arminianism than it does within Calvinism or open theism, for example. And so each system has its own set of challenges. And so before I move towards an answer, I should at least explain where I'm coming from theologically. And my goal here is not to convince you of my position, but rather to lay it out there so you can understand how I deal with and reconcile the problem of evil from my framework. So for the sake of this discussion, I want to just briefly define the meaning and implications of four of God's attributes, two of which were surfaced in the deductive problem. So we're going to look at his omniscience, his omnisapience, his omnipotence, and his omnibenevolence. First, God's omniscience. God is all-knowing. This is God's infinite and perfect knowledge of everything. He's all-knowing. Moreover, he knows all things because he sovereignly ordained them. Nothing happens outside of God's knowledge, decree, and divine sanction. He doesn't merely see the future. He designs it, working everything out, Ephesians, to the counsel of his will, 111. And so nothing exists or operates outside of God's purview. Not only does he decree the good, but he also decrees the bad. Lamentations 3.37-38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now many Christians bristle at such an expansive interpretation of God's omniscience, arguing that it makes him morally responsible for evil. It makes him the author of evil and casts doubt on his goodness and love. And so in order to absolve God of any wrongdoing, some have offered a softer definition. An extreme example is Harold Kushner in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He concludes, quote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives, but sometimes even he cannot bring that about. It's difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims, unquote. So in an effort to maintain God's goodness and love, I believe Kushner compromises his knowledge and power. According to his system, God is not responsible for evil because he's powerless to prevent it. And although this position resolves the problem of evil, I think it does so at great and terrible cost. As Wayne Grudem effectively cautions, quote, if evil came into the world in spite of the fact that God did not intend it and did not want it to be there, then what guarantee do we have that there will not be more and more evil that he does not intend and that he does not want? And what guarantee do we have that he will be able to use it for his purposes or even that he can triumph over it? Surely this is an undesirable alternative position. Now, to a far lesser degree, I believe that Arminianism also softens God's sovereignty with its position on humanity's free will. In this system, God cedes his sovereign authority to humankind by giving us the freedom to make our decisions and choose our own path. Thus, it is argued that creating free beings with the potential for evil was of greater value than creating perfect world filled with pre-programmed robots. So in this paradigm, evil originates in the free choices of man. And for this reason, God's not responsible for it. This is what is known as the free will defense. And it does present a popular and a compelling answer to the problem of evil. However, I think it does so at the expense of God's sovereignty. And so for me, I believe it is insufficient. Rather than creating trouble for the believer, I think a robust understanding of divine sovereignty can bring confidence and peace. For even in the face of the greatest of evils, we can be assured that God remains in control. As powerful and dominant as evil may appear, it can never step outside the bounds of God's sovereign design. So next, God's omnisapience. Namely, he is all wise. Do we know who that is? There it is. Problem solved. All right, uh, my 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 theology professor from Detroit defines God's omnisapience like this. I, I appreciate his definition. Possessing all, possessing a full and perfect understanding of all facts, both actual and possible, in infinite wisdom, God applies the greatest means in order to bring about the highest ends. So the necessary implication of God's wisdom here is that our world, with all of its evils and imperfections, is as Van Til would describe it, quote, the best of all possible worlds. He argues, quote, it goes without saying that the self-sufficient God who controls all things and knows all things because he controls them can use the best means to attain his ends. But what are the best means? They're those that God sees fit to use, unquote. Now, this is a presuppositional belief based on the perfect wisdom of God. Namely that this world is the best possible means of accomplishing God's greatest possible ends. And I believe that. But next God's omnipotence, he's all powerful. Do you remember the deductive problem evil? There the merit of that formulation rested in part on Makey's definition of omnipotence. He described it as the limitless power of God. But I think it's needful for us to ask, is that an adequate definition of God's power? Although there are several passages in scripture that seem to suggest that God's power is unlimited, right? Jesus says in Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. However, the Bible explicitly states that God cannot do everything. Hebrews 6.18 says he cannot tell a lie. James 1.13 says he cannot be tempted to sin. 2 Timothy 2.13 says he cannot deny himself. Instead, God can do all things that are consistent with his nature and purpose. So the scope of his power is not limited by any external restraints, but rather by his own nature. God walks in conformity with his own standards, not because he's subservient to them, but because they're a reflection of his being. And so as it relates to the problem of evil, one of the things that God cannot do is actualize a contradiction. He cannot, for example, create a square circle, make two plus two equal five, or for that matter, make a rock so big he cannot lift it. Because for such a contradiction would violate his nature and he cannot deny himself. And so understanding God's power within these parameters sets the course for addressing Makey's assertion that a holy, good, omnipotent being would eliminate evil completely. As theologian John Feinberg argues, when presented with the decision of creating a world like ours or a world with evil, quote, God had to choose between actualizing one of two good things. The two goods are mutually contradictory, so he couldn't do both. If he removes evil, he cannot also create the best of all possible worlds, unquote. So since evil exists, we must affirm that it plays a role in the existence of the best possible world. Thus, a world without evil would be a world that is less than best. And since God cannot create both a world without evil and the best of all possible worlds, which would be to actualize a contradiction, Feinberg concludes that, quote, he's not guilty for failing to do both, unquote. But finally, God's omnibenevolence, he's all good. Now remember, in order for the Christian worldview to be a logical contradiction, It must be proven that the goodness of God demands the non-existence of evil. If this can be demonstrated, then the presence of evil would nullify the goodness of an all-powerful deity. According to this interpretation, a God that is capable of preventing or at least removing evil, yet unwilling to do it, is himself evil. However, as I already noted, I think that that is a simplistic view of God's goodness. For although God is always opposed to evil, it does not necessarily follow that he must immediately prevent or eliminate evil. As a parent, I seek to protect my children from as much pain and suffering as possible, but never at the expense of their own welfare. How good would I be to refuse necessary medical care for my child solely in an effort to spare her the pain of the surgeon's scalpel? How good would I be to neglect corrective discipline simply to make the child's life more comfortable? I believe that there is biblical warrant for affirming that God in his infinite wisdom uses even the darkest of evil for the good of his children and the glory of his name. But next we must consider the validity of the problem. And here's where in our apologetic we go on the offensive. When presented with the problem by an atheist, a legitimate protest is that the atheist actually has no right to use evil to disprove God's existence because, according to his own worldview, evil cannot exist. Objective moral evil requires an objective moral law, and an objective moral law demands an objective moral lawgiver. If you take away the lawgiver, You lose the law, and then there is no mechanism for determining what is evil and what is good. After all, if you remove God, then who determines what's right? So I would argue that perhaps the rock of atheism is not as solid as they had hoped, right? With no basis for identifying evil, we can argue that the atheists' groundless accusations require no serious consideration pointing to the contradictions within their own worldview, this objection endeavors to end the discussion before it begins. And I think that's a helpful observation. While it is a crucial step in our dialogue, I don't think it's the final step. I don't think it it gets us off the hook because our burden of proof as a Christian theist is not merely to expose the inconsistencies of opposing worldviews, but also to give an account for the apparent inconsistency within our own, which brings us now to an answer to the problem of evil. But just a few caveats before we get there. First, let me set the parameters of the answer. As I mentioned earlier, my goal is to demonstrate that the presence of evil does not disprove the existence of the Bible's depiction of an all-powerful, all-loving God. I'm not seeking here to try and alleviate every tension. I recognize that there are evils in this world and even in your life that humanity cannot resolve, cannot create a justification for in our mind. But instead, my hope is merely to demonstrate that my belief in a good God in a wicked world is internally consistent and coherent. But my final caveat is to recognize the limitations of an answer to the problem. Limitations of our own finiteness and our own inferiority in the face of God's infinity and majesty. Limitations that drive us to consider two essential questions. Is this a problem that can be solved? And is this a problem that should be solved? And I think we need to really pause and wrestle with those questions. As brother Ken was mentioning earlier, we, 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 do, we can't stand as the judge before God as the defendant, right? So humanity's finiteness demands that we ask, is this a problem that can be solved? Due to our physical and cognitive limitations, we are incapable of fully comprehending an infinite God. And for this reason, some see the quest for an answer to the problem of evil as a futile and foolish endeavor. It is far beyond the scope of man's ability, it is argued, to understand an incomprehensible God whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are inscrutable, Romans eleven thirty-three. Instead, humanity's responsibility is simply to hold all the contradictions in faith without attempting to resolve the tension. Due to man's limitations, we should simply affirm with the French theologian, Henri Bochet, that quote, the problem of evil remains without any rational solution. Now, while it's crucial that we come to terms with our finitude, I do not think that the limitations disqualify us from this question entirely. Though God is incomprehensible, He is not inapprehensible. Although God cannot be known exhaustively, He can be known truly. Additionally, it is man's responsibility to pursue a deeper understanding of the mind, ways, and judgments of God that have been revealed in the Scriptures. But what about humanity's positional inferiority to God? Even if the problem of evil is a question that can be answered, we must consider, is it one that should be? You remember Job? When he demanded an explanation from God for the evils in his life, instead of providing an answer, God actually responded with a barrage of questions of his own. In the face of God's overwhelming glory, Job cried, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I do not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Is it ever our place to question the attributes of God, even if they seem to contradict our experience of suffering and pain? Do we have the authority to investigate the veracity of God's love and power and wisdom in the face of evil? Moreover, does God need us to rush to his defense? For these reasons, some argue that we have no right to pose questions like these and would do well to stop asking questions and simply trust that the judge of all the earth will do right. And I think this warning is valid. When dealing with a topic that seeks to defend God to man, it's vital that we place it in its proper perspective. Concerning man's subordination to God, there is a number of implications that must be considered. First, God does not need us to defend him like a defendant needs an attorney. Second, God is not obligated to justify his deeds to us. Whenever apparent contradictions arise in theology that we cannot resolve, or even our personal experience, we must acknowledge that although we cannot resolve it, it finds resolution even if solely in the mind of God. The presence of evil is a problem for us, but it's not a problem for God. Finally, we never have the authority to level any accusatory complaint against God. For as John Frame warns, quote, when we put ourselves in the proud position of demanding an answer, then we can respect. Then we can expect a rebuke from God like the one He gave to Job. Unquote. And yet, despite these hazards, I believe that the endeavor falls within our charge to make a defense for the hope that is in us. And so it is with this in mind that we now turn to what, in my opinion, is the most viable answer to the problem of evil. The solution I am proposing today is called the Greatest Glory Defense, and it's really just a variation of the Greater Good Defense. And since these views share so much in common, I'll briefly explain the latter and then move to the former. So the greater good defense, at the heart of this defense, is the belief that God is justified in permitting evil because it results in the greater good of his people. In fact, not only does good often come out of evil, but many goods are dependent upon evil for their expression. For example, we would never experience courage without conflict, compassion, Without distress, mercy without offense, our perseverance without hardship. In light of this, the argument goes that God remains good in permitting evil because he uses it for good. As R. C. Sproul concludes, quote, God's sovereignty stands over evil, and he's able to bring good out of evil and to use evil for his holy purposes, unquote. And although this defense does not relieve by any means all of the tensions. It's not without biblical support. In fact, you look at the life of Joseph. He was mistreated by his brothers. He was torn from his family, sold into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison. Yet at the end of his story, Joseph sees that God in his goodness used the evils in his life to bring about the salvation of thousands from famine. Do you remember what he said to his brothers at the end of his narrative? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. But perhaps the clearest example of good coming through evil is demonstrated in the greatest atrocity in human history, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This wicked act was not meaningless, but was the means by which God would bring about salvation. And in this way, God actually takes evil, the greatest evil imaginable, and turns it back on itself. For in bruising Jesus' heel, Satan crushes his own head. I believe that the greater good defense is both internally coherent and biblically based. However, it's not without issue. And I think that the biggest one is that it tends to build its case on a man-centered focus of God's eternal plans and purposes. Now, although our greatest pleasure is found in God and we benefit from God's plans, I think it's a mistake to hold that the center of God's activity in the universe is the welfare and happiness of mankind. As Paul Tripp often says, we need to recognize that it's not our party. We are not the center of this story. Robert Raymond says it this way, quote, "We have not penetrated God's purpose sufficiently if we conclude that we are the center of God's purpose, or that His purpose terminates finally upon us by accomplishing our glorification. Rather, our glorification is only the means to a higher, indeed the highest end conceivable, that God's son might be the firstborn among many brothers," Romans 8:29 and all to the praise of God's glorious grace, unquote. Yet I think that the greater good defense should not be rejected completely. And I think it's possible to salvage the position by altering the result of evil from the man-centered good of humanity to the God-centered glory of God and hence the greatest good glory defense. And although this response contains a similar line of reasoning to the greater good defense, The point of divergence is the content of the good that is produced from evil. Instead of focusing the positive results of evil solely upon the happiness and welfare of humanity, this defense sees a greater purpose of work, namely the glory of God. Thus God uses evil to glorify himself by communicating the fullest manifestation of himself to his image bearers. Hodge observes that, quote, there could be no manifestation of God's mercy without misery or of his grace and justice if there were no sin. As the heavens declare the glory of God, so he has devised the plan of redemption, Ephesians 3, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, unquote. Just a few weeks ago, my counseling professor told me, That he's convinced that one of the most powerful means by which God makes his power and presence known to his children is through suffering. Perhaps you have felt that too. Thus evil is a means by which God reveals aspects of himself to his creation. For without evil, mankind would know nothing of God's patience, forgiveness, mercy, and sacrifice. A fitting biblical example is seen in John 11. In this narrative, Jesus is informed that his friend Lazarus is fatally ill, and upon receiving the report, Jesus makes it clear that Lazarus' illness is neither an accident nor a tragedy. Instead, it is, quote, for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it, John 11:4. In this passage, Jesus uses the death of his friend to display his glory to grieving sisters, to doubting Jews, and to ignorant apostles. Throughout biblical history, God glorifies himself through his victory over evil and his punishment of it, either in the lake of fire or on the cross of Calvary. And with this in view, I must conclude that God permitted the fall and all of its ensuing evils for the glory of his name. William Cowper was born in England in 1731, and as an adult, he suffered from seasons of deep depression even attempting on several occasions to take his own life. So one day as a resident in a British asylum, Cowper came upon a Bible and he came to Jesus. And years later, as a follower of Christ, having experienced innumerable struggles and pains, he penned the following poem. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. At times in the midst of pain and confusion and loss, it may feel as Shakespeare's Macbeth declared that life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. But we know better. We know that our story has been written by the master writer, and although we can only see the parts, the divine author can see the whole. And perhaps right now you're stumbling through a particularly dark season chapter in your story. But no matter the arc of your tale, if you are a child of God, of this you can be certain, every part was crafted with intention and it is moving towards your happily ever after. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, Revelation 21, 3 and 4, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Yes, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Will you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that we are limited in our understanding. We are broken and we are feeble and we are frail. And at times our faith is weak, hanging by a thread. So we ask God that you would hold us fast to you. Maybe there's someone here who's not necessarily wrestling with the logical problem of evil, but is definitely experiencing the emotional problem the emotional pain, and the emotional sorrow. God, please hold them in your love and your care. Be their strength and their strong tower. And lift our weary eyes to see that happily ever after. In Jesus' name, amen.